passage of Scripture this morning leads to a crescendo. The word crescendo is a musical term, and Merriam-Webster defines a crescendo as a gradual increase in the loudness of a sound or section of music, or the highest or loudest point of something that increases gradually. So a crescendo is a point of emphasis that the rest of the music leads to. Well, this morning we're going to study a sermon preached by a man named Stephen. And we're going to see how his sermon built to a crescendo. The entire sermon pointed to an emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ. And when you view this sermon from that perspective, you see that the entire sermon points to Jesus. So the title of my sermon this morning is, and by the way, just the title alone is worthy of an amen. Now, I'm not suggesting that you say amen. I'm just letting you know on the front end that the title in and of itself is worthy of an amen. Here's the title. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And just FYI, this past week I was studying, and I got up to eight points in my sermon And I said, no way can I get that done in one sermon. So I've divided it into two, okay? So this week is is all about Jesus, part one. Next week, spoiler alert, it's all about Jesus, part two, all right? So we've divided chapter seven into two sermons. We may have to divide it into three by the time we're through, but we're going to look at Acts chapter seven. We're going to start in verse one. So turn there with me, Acts chapter seven, verse one, as we continue our study through this wonderful book, line by line, verse by verse. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Truth with no mixture of error. I'm grateful today for my Bible. How about you? Acts chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Let's pray together today. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful, Lord, for this opportunity of corporate worship. Lord, there is nothing like getting together with your faith family and fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and and praising your matchless name and letting you speak into our lives and transform us. And, and God, I pray that you would manifest your presence in a very real and tangible way today. I pray that you would manifest your presence in, a, in an unusual way, Lord, so that there's no question when we leave, Lord, that we would leave knowing that we have met with God. So have your way in our midst. Lord, help us by your Spirit to to understand your word, and to take your word and apply it to our lives. We love you and we praise you, and we offer you this prayer in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We learn in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen was one of the first deacons in the first century church. And we saw that he was a man who boldly preached Jesus Christ as he was led and empowered by the Spirit of God. And his Spirit-led preaching got him into all sorts of trouble. 
Last week we talked about the startling reality of persecution. That if you follow Jesus, if the Spirit has control of your life and you share Christ, that you're going to get into some uncomfortable, intimidating situations. Because the Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted me, the head of the church, they're going to persecute my body too. And so we should expect persecution, but as we are led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world, we need to claim some promises that Jesus is always with us, that he rewards us when we encounter and endure persecution, and Jesus will give us the words we say when we need them. And so we claim those promises in the face of persecution. And as we studied Stephen's life, we saw that the religious authorities brought some false charges against him. They twisted his words to try to get him into trouble so they could punish him and get him off the scene so he would no longer lead people astray by preaching Jesus Christ. And notice what it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 13. It says, They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And his answer is a sermon. I love how Stephen takes advantage of this platform. He's like, oh, you're going to ask me a question? Well, I'm just going to preach. And so he preaches this wonderful sermon that leads to a crescendo in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to note that until the very end, the name of Jesus is not mentioned. Uh, He's not mentioned in the sermon per se. But when we look back at the sermon from the perspective of the culmination of the sermon, we see that the entire sermon is building up to that point of of pointing people to Jesus Christ. Now, this sermon is organized around four major epics in Jewish history. First of all, Stephen mentions uh, Abraham and the formation of the Jewish people and the patriarchal age. Then he mentions the second epic, Joseph, and the time that the Hebrews were in Egypt. And then he mentions the third epic, Moses and the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And the fourth epic deals with David and Solomon and the building of the temple. So as he reviews Jewish history and shows how all of Jewish history points to Jesus, that is all about Jesus, he walks him through these four different epics. And what I want to do is I want to show you how the major theme of Stephen's sermon is, it's all about Jesus. So just follow along with me there in your notes. First of all, I want you to see that the formation of Israel was all about Jesus. The formation of Israel was all about Jesus. Look what it says uh, in verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. 
And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. Now fast forward to verse 8. And he gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And so Stephen wants the, the, the Jewish people, the religious authorities and the others who are gathered to understand that the, the message of Jesus can be traced back all the way to Abraham. And he brings Abraham up, and the religious authorities would have known well the story of Abraham. So let's just rewind very quickly to Genesis chapter 12. You've probably read that passage before when God appears to Abraham, and he makes him three wonderful promises. What are the promises? The first promise is this. Abraham, I'm going to give you a descendant. Now, Abraham and Sarah were beyond childbearing years, and so God was going to touch their bodies, so they were uh, able to conceive and have a son. And, and the second promise is this. Uh, through your descendants, I'm going to build a great, a great nation, and I'm going to give them a land in which to live. So this remarkable promise. I'm going to give you a son, give your son descendants. That, that Those descendants will become a great nation. I'm going to give them a land in which to dwell. And then the third promise is this. Through your descendants, Abraham... Through your seed, all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so you might say, well, wait, how was that promise fulfilled? We know that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. It's mentioned here in this passage. And, and that God, through Abraham's descendants, built a great and mighty nation. We know as the nation of Israel or the, the Hebrew people. And, and God gave them a promised land. We read about that in the Old Testament. But wait, how did God fulfill that promise to Abraham that he was going to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham's descendants? Well... You remember that after God formed the nation of Israel and preserved the nation of Israel, that one day God, in the fullness of time, decided to send His Son through the lineage of Abraham's descendants. He sent Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, and Jesus Christ came through the Jewish people. And when Jesus Christ came to this earth, He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And of His own volition, Jesus Christ went to the cross. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sins of the world. In other words, Jesus died for all of our sins, right? Americans, Asians, Africans, Europeans, everyone. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Here's what that means. If anyone from any tribe, any language, any ethnicity, if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are blessed with the salvation that only Jesus Christ gives. So through the descendants of Abraham came Jesus. Through the death of Jesus comes this blessing of salvation that's available to anyone who placed their faith in Christ. So way back to Genesis 12, when he said, through your descendants all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, God was referring to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So you might ask the question, why did God... Choose a nation. Have you ever wondered that? Why are the Jews God's chosen people? Is it just so he could say, I've got a chosen nation. No one else is, is a part of that. This is just my own little select group and everyone else is left out. No. God chose the Jews so that he could send a Messiah for everyone. That's the message of the Bible. So if you look there in your notes, 
God appeared to Abraham to start a new nation that would bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. The Bible records, listen, that one day when we're around the throne of the Lamb in heaven, there will be representatives from every tribe, every tongue, worshiping King Jesus because they received the blessing of salvation that started way back with Abraham but culminated in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so we see here that the formation of Israel was all about Jesus. We learned that song early on growing up, right? Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham, one of them, so are you. You know the song, right? That song speaks to the lineage of salvation through Christ that can be traced all the way back to God starting a brand new nation through Abraham's seed. Wow. And so, he never mentions Jesus in this first part of the sermon about Abraham, but when he gets to the crescendo, it's clear that Stephen's intention is to show God started a nation so he could send Jesus. Here's the second truth I want you to see. The preservation of Israel was all about Jesus. So he formed Israel so he could send Jesus, but he preserved Israel so he could send Jesus. And he goes from the first major epic dealing with Abraham to to speaking of Joseph, who is one of the sons of Jacob. And look what it says in Genesis, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 7, verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, why were the patriarchs, the other 11 sons of Jacob, why were they jealous of Joseph? Well, Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob played favorites. And, and that always leads to division in a family, by the way. When you play favorites with your kids, you shouldn't do that. The Bible teaches us that you need to stay clear of favorite, favorite, uh, playing favorites with one kid over another. But Jacob played favorites with Joseph and made him a coat of many colors. This made the other brothers jealous. So they were going to kill him, but then they decided not to kill him. And as a band of traders came through their area... They, they sold Joseph into slavery. And they thought, well, we're done with him. We'll never see him again. Wrong. Because you see, Joseph went to Egypt. And what happened next? Well, look what it says in verse 10. It says, God was with Joseph and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, here's the deal. Joseph got to Egypt as a slave and it went from bad to worse. God was with him, so he had great favor as a servant in Potiphar's household, who was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguards. And things were going great, but Potiphar's wife thought Joseph was handsome and started to make some advances toward Joseph. And Joseph said, I can't do this thing that you want to do because I don't want to sin against God. And this made Potiphar's wife angry. And so she lied about Joseph and said, He has assaulted me. So they took Joseph as a slave and threw him into prison. So he went from bad to worse. Slavery to imprisonment. And you think, boy, it looks pretty bleak for Joseph. But God had a plan for Joseph's life. And in prison, through a series of circumstances, which I don't have time to go into this morning, God raised Joseph up out of that prison... And as it says here, made him second in command of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. So why did God raise Joseph up and make him the second most powerful man in Egypt? Well, look what it says in verse 11. 
Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Remember his dad, Jacob, and his other brothers? They're over there living in their land, and they are going to starve to death because of the famine. Where's all the food? It's in Egypt. God gave Joseph the insight to know that before the seven years of famine, there was going to be seven years of plenty. And Joseph led Egypt to to store up grain over the seven years of plenty so they could supply grain to the people during the seven years of famine. So if you wanted to survive during the famine, you had to go to Egypt. And Joseph's brothers go to Egypt looking for food. And again, through a series of circumstances, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers And they're reconciled and he brings his father to Egypt and his brothers and their families to Egypt. And he provides for them and gives them what they need during the famine years so that the seed of Abraham is preserved through a time of great famine. You think, wait, that's just an interesting story. You know, way back in Genesis, that has nothing to do with me. Wrong. Do you know why God went to such great lengths to preserve Jacob and his sons because he had a plan to send a Messiah through the Jewish people for you and for me. And so God is preserving the Hebrew people for us. So that story, that ancient story about Joseph and coats of many colors and Potiphar's wife and jail and Pharaoh and famine is all about God's plan of salvation for us. And Stephen wants the Jewish religious leaders to understand it's all about Jesus. God raised up Joseph to provide for his family during a great famine, thus keeping the lineage of Christ intact. I read a story the other day about the use of preservatives in our society. And it showed a picture. A a man had saved a hamburger from McDonald's in the 90s. And he he kept it. And about 10 years later, he he went and bought a brand new hamburger from McDonald's and put them beside each other. And they looked exactly the same. Why? Preservatives, right? We, We use a lot of preservatives to keep things from decaying. Well, God was active in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph, and even beyond that, throughout the history of Israel, God was active in preserving His people, keeping them intact, even when they were unfaithful, because God had a rescue plan to send a son, His son, through the Jewish people. And Stephen wants the religious leaders to understand that that whole story about, about Joseph and Jacob, it's all about Jesus. Here's the third thing. The ministry and message of Moses was all about Jesus. The ministry and message of Moses was all about Jesus. Look what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers, Stephen says, to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty 
in his words and deeds. So another beautiful story of God's providence to save the life of Moses because he had a a special plan for his life, a, a way he wanted to use him. Look what it says in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses was a Hebrew male, but he grew up as an Egyptian. He had a foot in both worlds, but he came to the conclusion, my people, the Hebrew people, should not be mistreated. They should not be enslaved by Pharaoh. So Moses said, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. And he killed an Egyptian man who was mistreating a Hebrew. He said, okay, now's the time to march to freedom. But the Hebrew people would not receive his leadership. Look what it says in verse 26. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, when he became the father, where he became the father of two sons. And so the, the Hebrew people said, we don't want you leading us, Moses. And Moses knew there was information out there that he had killed an Egyptian man. So Moses fled for his life. Moses needed to spend some time in the wilderness so God could work on his character to prepare him to be the leader of the Hebrew people out of Egyptian slavery. After 40 years... God intersected his life once again. The famous story of the burning bush. Look what it says in verse 30. When he was 40 years, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So God calls Moses at the burning bush. He says, I want you to go and lead my people out of Egypt. Go to Pharaoh and say, Let my people go. So look what it says in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So he reminds them of the story of Moses. The Jewish religious leaders would have known this story well. They revered Moses. But as we look at this sermon from the perspective of the crescendo, the culmination of the sermon, the point of it all, we see that Stephen wants them to understand Moses is all about Jesus. Now he said, what does Moses have to do with Jesus? Well, two things. First of all, Moses foreshadowed Christ in his roles. Moses foreshadowed Christ. Look what it says in verse 35. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. So Moses' role was to to lead the people 
and to redeem them, to lead them to freedom, which foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus to us? Jesus is our ruler, he's the king of kings, and he's our redeemer. He has set us free, right? So this, this, these roles of Moses foreshadowed the roles in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But not only did Moses foreshadow Christ, Moses predicted Christ. Look what it says in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So way back in Deuteronomy, Moses says, listen, it's not about me. God's going to raise up another prophet who will be a ruler and a redeemer. Your job is to listen to him and follow him. And so here's what Stephen is saying. Again, thinking about the culmination of the sermon, it's all about Jesus. He's saying the prophet that Moses predicted would come is none other than the righteous one whom you killed. And so Moses predicted Christ. He predicted a prophet would come, and his name is Jesus. Now, for many of us in this room, when we think about Moses, we think about Charlton Heston, right? Movie was on Easter Sunday. We watched some of it as a family. I mean, it's, it's iconic. When you think Moses, you think Charlton Heston. But here's what I want you to learn. Here's how I want you to approach the Bible. Here's how I want you to approach the Old Testament. Listen, when you think about Moses, you ought to think about Jesus. Not Charlton Heston, Jesus. Because the ministry of Moses pointed to the work of Jesus Christ, right? So think about him. Stephen wanted the religious leaders to think about Moses in the context of Jesus. But there's a final, final truth I want you to see until next week. Number four, the law was all about Jesus. See, the Jewish religious leaders revered Abraham. And they revered Joseph. And they revered Moses. And they revered the law. And Stephen's helping them to understand all of those things, all of those people, and those, those, those things you revere, all of them are about Jesus. And he mentions the law as he builds up to the crescendo here. What's he say about the law? Well, first of all, he wanted them to understand that the law called for faithfulness. Look what it says in verse 38. Moses, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. And so when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him the law to relay to the Jewish people. But look what it says in the next verse. It says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In other words, God's law was something to obey, but they didn't obey. They, they disobeyed. But God gave them commandments to obey. That's what the law was about. It was, uh, it was God's way of calling for the faithfulness of his people. Now, the law is multifaceted. There, there's a, a civil element of the law where God gives instructions to the Jewish people as to how they're to live in relationship with one another as a nation. There's the sacrificial law, which is the elaborate sacrificial system that God set up. More on that in a few moments. And there's the moral law of God, which, which communicates God's moral expectations for our lives. The moral law of God is summarized in what you and I call the Ten Commandments. For example, we know that 
lying is wrong because God said, do not bear false witness, right? And we could go through all the Ten Commandments and see how God relays His standards and expectations for our life. So the law called for faithfulness. Obey what I'm telling you to do. That's what God gave Moses to give to the people. But secondly, the law, and this is important because this applies to us in this room, the law exposed unfaithfulness. The law exposed unfaithfulness. Look what it says in verse 40. It says in verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, a false god. The star of your god, Raphon, a false god. The images that you made to worship, graven images. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So God gave them the law, and they disobeyed, and this showed them their unfaithfulness. In other words, when they did not meet the standard, it showed them that they were ruined and needed redemption. Can I tell you this? That's the purpose of the law today. So does the Ten Commandments have any relevance for me in 2015? The answer is yes. We're to keep the Ten Commandments. God gives them to us to obey. It's His moral law. But here's the deal. All of us have disobeyed the Ten Commandments, correct? And the Bible says, if you disobeyed one, it's like you've disobeyed them all. We've all fallen short of God's standard. That's why the Bible says in Galatians 3.24 that the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. The law, listen, listen, the law shows us how sinful we are so that we will not walk, but we will run to Jesus. When you realize how Far short of the glory of God, you fall, you will see your desperate need for a Savior. That's why God gave us the law. Over in Romans 7, Paul says, You know, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know that I'm such a coveter. But when I see the command, do not covet, it awakens in me this desire to covet. It shows me that I've got something wrong on the inside. That I've got a sin nature that, that covets things that don't belong to me. And guess what? You've got the same problem. You ever walk by a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch. What do you want to do? That little rebel in you wants to touch, doesn't it? You know that rebellion is in your heart? It's your sin nature. And when we look at the law of God, we want to rebel We have rebelled against the law of God. We've all sinned against a holy God. And the recognition of that sin that the law gives us is an impetus for us to run to Jesus. So the law calls for faithfulness, but the law also exposes our unfaithfulness. It shows us how desperate we are for a Savior. But here's the third thing. The law foreshadowed the solution to unfaithfulness. So we've all sinned against God. We've all blown it. We're separated from Him by our sin. Is there any hope? Well, God gave them the sacrificial system, this elaborate 
system where animals would be killed, blood would be shed. These ceremonies which pictured so many wonderful spiritual realities. See, week after week, and month after month, year after year, the people went through these ceremonies and they saw innocent animals die for guilty people. And the, the blood of these animals would be shed and, and sprinkled on the altar, once a year sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And all these ceremonies taught the people, we are sinners, we need a Savior, innocence has to die for guilt, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But listen, the sacrificial system saved no one. People weren't saved by, by taking the blood of those different animals. All of those sacrifices through the decades and decades of Jewish worship, all of those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was innocence who died for guilt. Amen? And Jesus had to shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. He had to take the punishment that you and I deserve so our sins could be washed away. So that entire sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in those sacrifices, God was saying, here's the solution to your unfaithfulness. One day, God will send a Redeemer, a suffering servant, who will take the the penalty and the punishment for your iniquity. Place your faith in what God is going to do to save you. And now, as people that live on this side of the cross, we are saved by placing our faith in what Christ has done for us, by looking back at the finished work of Calvary. And so, the law called for faithfulness, the law exposed unfaithfulness, and the law foreshadowed the solution to unfaithfulness, which is Jesus. So the law was all about Jesus. Do you get the point here? He's building to the crescendo. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the law, all these things you revere. But the crescendo is this. Look back with me again in verse 53. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. All of this Jewish history culminates in Jesus. And he says, guess what? You killed Jesus. And it's all about him. And so, Stephen is showing us how Jewish history pointed to and culminated in Jesus Christ. Here's the point of the sermon, if you look there in your notes. God has a rescue plan for humanity that culminates in Jesus. And listen, to reject Jesus is to reject God's salvation. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. Jesus said it like this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. You can't separate salvation and Jesus. You can't separate heaven and Jesus. You can't separate relationship with God and Jesus. Jesus is the way to be saved because it's all about Him. I'll close with a, a quick story. Years ago, it's been, a, it's been a while now, I was meeting with a couple that was having some problems. And, and I began to ask them about their relationship with God. I want to know their spiritual journey, their spiritual background. I want to know where they were when it came to Jesus. So, Ed, why would you deal with, with Jesus and salvation in a counseling situation? Well, here's the answer. 
you don't clean up your life to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to clean up your life. So if you're trying to fix things without Jesus, it's, listen, it's never going to work. It's just not going to work. I don't care how good a counselor is or what books you read or what websites you're surfing. If you don't have Jesus, it's not going to work. He's the one that changes your life. He's the one that transforms you. He's the one that cleans you up. But that's a side note. So I was meeting with this couple, and, and, and I asked the lady this question about where she was with Jesus. And she said something to this effect. Well, I've done that. And she said, back when I was, was about 12 years of age, I was at youth camp. And on one night, I had a real emotional night. Everyone was crying. And I remember crying and being really emotional. And, and so that's how I know that, that, I'm a, that I'm a Christian. And I said, well, tell me about the last 28 years since that night. Has there been any concern for the things of Christ? Do you talk about Him or praise Him or talk to Him or think about Him or, or follow Him or discuss Him? Is, is there any Jesus in your life? And she said, well, no, not really. And as lovingly as I could, I tried to show her that saying you're saved when there's no Jesus in your life is entirely not compatible. You can't experience the blessings of salvation apart from Jesus. Salvation is not some emotional episode that you have, even though you might have been emotional when you were saved. It's a, a volitional decision to say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that what Jesus did for me by dying on the cross and rising from the dead is my only hope. And based upon my faith in what he did for me, I'm going to call on his name and ask him to save me and give my life to him. Not only do I want his salvation, but I want him. I want to follow him. And so if you have some past religious emotional decision, but for decades there's been no thought of Jesus in your life, I'd be very concerned about my eternity. Because there is no salvation apart from Jesus. Listen, it's all about Jesus. And he wanted to understand that because, listen, the religious leaders, were they were religious. They were devout. They had experiences, but they missed the point of it all. They missed Jesus. And he wanted to understand Moses and Joseph and Abraham and the law and the temple and David and Solomon, all these things that you hold dear, it's all worthless if you miss the point of it all. It's all about Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. So can I just tell you this this morning? If you're relying in religious experience or church membership or catechism or confirmation or baptism or denominational affiliation, if you're relying on any of that stuff to get you to heaven, if you think you're going to heaven because your parents are Christians or your grandparents are Christians, you're missing it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. Don't miss that. That's the point of the Old Testament. That's the point of the New Testament. That's the point of the Word of God. That's the point of God's redemptive plan. It's all about Jesus. So if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting salvation. 